Welcome to episode two of the Low Left podcast. I am still me, the the author, Brett Bass, guy recording the thing. Um, so in the, in the previous episode, I kind of outlined like, hey, you know, there's a podcast and I'm doing this thing and there's a thing I want to talk about and it's the Russo-Ukrainian war, but there's a lot there and I don't really know where to start. So I'm picking a topic kind of at random from the, the litany of, of starting points I, I didn't know if I wanted to go with. So I guess I have a winner. Um, and I'd like to talk about the status of the war. Like, what, what do we actually know? Uh, and so I'm, I'm titling this episode, Remember Folks, It's Foggy Out, uh, because the fog of war is real, and there is a predilection to, I think, false confidence and false certainty within the West, particularly amongst the very online American segment of the population. I would describe myself as moderately online. So worth noting that I am just as susceptible to this as many. So with that said, I'd like to kind of set the stage a little bit here. Because war is a complex and nuanced topic. And it is engaged at a variety of levels. And I don't, I don't necessarily know that that many people actually receive formal education in this. So there's a lot of sort of imprecision with the way uh, people in the media tend to discuss things. Like people tend to use uh, terms like tactics and strategy interchangeably. And these are actually completely different levels of, uh, of warfare. So think of this, this intro section here as like a, a primer on this concept. So first, there's the individual level, like how well equipped, disciplined, trained, and motivated is the individual soldier or warrior. I guess the, the current super hot catchphrase is warfighter, which has this really sort of like, I don't know, DARPA, military industrial context, 21st century global war on terrorism, jargon, cringe factor to it, which I don't know, I tend to avoid a little bit. I don't know, I feel like somebody from Cry Precision is uh, inviting me to an after party at SHOT Show every time somebody talks about warfighters, and, and I don't know. So anyway, but the, the, the quality level and the amount of dedication, how properly equipped and provisioned the individual person is, is sort of the, the first aspect of this. So individuals in contemporary warfare in sort of the, the soldier versus warrior uh, dichotomy. So I'll back up a little bit even further to kind of unpack that. In much older times, there were warrior societies in which the individual and his uh, prowess as a warrior would be definitive in determining the, the fate of most armed conflicts. Uh, and by the time uh, we, we get into antiquity, the, 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 the ascendance of the warrior had been eclipsed by the ascendance of the soldier. And the, part of this is like a scale issue. So like soldiers are perhaps not individually anywhere near as well equipped or trained or specialized or strong or smart or fast uh, as an individual warrior, but you can organize a whole bunch of them and it takes way less time to get them ready and you have them operate as a cohesive unit. So if hypothetically a individual Ronin were to go up against a Macedonian phalanx, um, 
the Macedonian phalanx, of course, doesn't have anyone that's nearly as skillful as uh, the a swordsman as the, the ronin, you know, the sort of masterless samurai warrior or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, they don't care how many people he's bested in combat or who his father is or what lands he lays claims to. They're, they're just going to march forward and spear him to death in a large group. So that that's worth noting. That, that'll become relevant later because I, I think this is an apocryphal Stalin quote was um, quantity has a quality all of its own. And there's another concept that I'll probably have to discuss in greater detail at some point called the 85% solution, which is also potentially relevant here. So it's not to say that the quality of the individual person doing the fighting is irrelevant, but just to put it in context, it's one factor. It's one thing that needs to be weighed against other things. So moving up from that, in the context of looking at more contemporary sort of soldier, like unit-based warfare, after the qualitative um, nature of the individual is taken into account, we then have to look at tactics. Tactics are the maximum maximization of um, resources, such as terrain features or technologies, communications procedures to maximize the friendly side's advantages and also maximize the uh, disadvantages to the, the enemy. So this would be employing uh, groups of people in organized fashion in order to defeat other groups of, of people on a like a battle level. So the individual person can wind up an individual fight with another individual person. And then the, the quality of training and discipline and equipment, etc., uh, is highly influential. Tactics are how you get groups of people to achieve victory in individual battles. So in the proper context, tactics are at a lower, more intimate level of warfare uh, than the other two that we'll mention. So the next is operations. Operations are the ability to string together sequences of victories in order to accomplish broader scale objectives. So if we think about the global war on terrorism, just contemporary modern American context, there, there, there's quite a bit of like imprecision with talking about that, that there were two wars going on. And I understand there are actually like somewhat more nuanced discussions to have around this, but at least on paper anyway, there were two operations, like two campaigns within one war. It was the Iraq campaign and the Afghan campaign of the global war on terrorism, right? So stringing together sequences of victories in order to hold or control specific terrain features or um, population centers, uh, etc., are what you use to secure operational gains. So if you look back at uh, World War II, you could look at something like Operation Market Garden, in which uh, the objective was to win the war by launching a bunch of allied troops across uh, seized bridges across the Rhine and then into the German heartland. And of course, as part of that operation, there were a number of terrain features, in this case, bridges that needed to be seized. And of course, then localized unit commanders would employ tactics uh, and rely on the skill, preparation, and discipline and morale of their individual soldiers in order to accomplish that. So that's, that's where operations fits in. Um, and this, this is the area where we start to get a hazier and hazier view, um, uh, because beyond this is strategy. 
and strategy is employed at the highest possible levels in order to accomplish civilizational or national level objectives. And strategy is not exclusively a military domain. Strategy can include economic policies, trade partnerships, alliances. It can include communications, propaganda. It can span across continents. Strategy is influence things at this scale anyway in, in the modern world. Exerting national will in order to see to national objectives on a geopolitical level. So individual, tactical, operational, and strategic layers of, of warfare. What we are, I, I, I'm put it this way. There are generalities about what we are able to perceive in the Russo-Ukrainian war. So we can take note of open source intelligence and folks that are well-versed in the order of battle for uh, the Russian military can make informed determinations about who's doing what. And uh, we can use satellites to take note of where front lines are or where fortifications have been dug. Um, these things are, are independently verifiable without necessarily relying on the clearly uh, biased perspectives of the, the principal combatants. So in this case, it'd be, of course, Russia. Russia is going to slant everything in such a way as to uh, attempt to preserve the morale of their own side. Uh, this is this is propaganda. And propaganda properly understood um, should be contextualized in that it, it, there's a negative connotation to it. And I don't want to portray this as some sort of odd moral statement that a combatant nation has some sort of metaphysical obligation to portray the unvarnished truth uh, because that's not in their national interest to do so. So understand that propaganda is the, the using of information in order to accomplish psychological or information objectives uh, that can either benefit your own side or damage the others, and typically in the, in the realm of uh, morale. And as I believe it was Napoleon once said, in war, uh, the moral, as in the morale, is to the practical, as is three to one. It's a paraphrase. But maintaining morale is highly important. So we shouldn't expect the principal combatants to be completely uh, transparent about how egregious their own losses are, uh, how successful their adversaries have been. So with the understanding that both the principal combatants, uh, Ukraine and the Russian Federation, are going to be presenting information selectively or um, otherwise casting it in lights that are beneficial to their national objectives, what's called open source intelligence, things can be independently verified, are our best sort of spectator's view to what's happening at a, at a large scale, at an operational scale within the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. Conflict doesn't feel like a, a strong enough word. Russo-Ukrainian war, we'll put it that way. So there are broad truisms that 
I think via consensus are reasonable to believe are at least what I'm going to refer to as directionally accurate. So by that I mean the specifics and the scale may be off, but I think the conclusions are uh, at least oriented in the right direction. So it's directionally accurate. So it looks as though the Russian attack did not go anywhere near as well as was expected. It looks as though the Ukrainians have been far more disciplined organized and effective than people believe they would be. Uh, and it does look, based on a lot of um, corroborating analysis and independently verifiable open source intelligence, that the Russians have experienced really serious logistics and supply problems, which have led to widespread morale issues. So... As of today, when I'm recording, this today's the 25th of March. Uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war has been ongoing for a little over a month now. And in that span of time, uh, the, the Russians have seized what looks on the maps to me through Jane's and the Institute of the Study of War, probably about 10% of the overall land mass of Ukraine. And it's worth noting, um, holding just... To, spaces you fill in on a map doesn't win you wars. It's specific terrain features that will enable your forces to be able to control areas and deny access to the enemy. So it's it's somewhat deceptive to look at a map with no terrain features on it. It's been shaded in various colors of red and blue and then make sweeping prognostications about it. Um, but, but that said, it does look as though the early attempts to uh, sees the capital city of Kiev have uh, ground largely to a halt. Uh, various independent reports have, have indicated that several attempts to seize the city have been made, and there are just a large number of reports from people that don't necessarily know each other, so as a result I'm less suspicious of confirmation bias that uh, th this has been a combination of supply issues, Russian vehicles running out of fuel and ammunition being abandoned so that their soldiers can can run away. Um, at coordination problems, significant coordination problems, um, things of that nature. So it looks like from an operational level down, there may have been uh, shortcomings at the operational level, as in planning how to conduct the invasion itself. That remains to be seen. Uh, it's worth noting that we don't necessarily know all of Russia's operational objectives. Now, given the sheer number of forces engaged in certain things, it's reasonable to make educated guesses about what their main and supporting efforts have been. Within that context, it, it does appear at both, I think the Janes and the Institute for the Study of War analyses say that the att attempt to take Kiev was the main effort. Uh, and that appears to have failed at least for now and attempts to reinforce with auxiliary forces are going to be facing an uphill battle. So that is probably going to wind up uh, in a stalemate, according to the Institute for the Study of War, and I guess we shall see, right? Um, it's worth noting this is not the only invasion axis. So it appears as though there were about half a dozen points at which Russia invaded Ukraine. 
So we'll, we'll talk about this more in the future, but it's, it's worth noting that Russian forces occupied parts of Ukraine ever since 2014. So the Crimean Peninsula, which is in the south and goes into the Black Sea, has a very important naval port called uh, Sevastopol, which Russia occupies and is making heavy use out of. And there's a large Russian garrison there, and they arrayed somewhere in the ballpark of 190,000 troops along various parts of the Ukrainian border, and they then flooded in through a few other places. So the main effort to seize Kiev appears to have come down from Belarus, which is essentially a, a puppet state of Russia. Um, their local tin pot, a guy named Lukashenko, is in power because Vladimir Putin allows it, and uh, they allow Russia to make use of their territory, including recent constitutional changes uh, to the Belarusian uh, government that will allow for the staging of nuclear weapons that are owned by Russia. So it, it's, a, it's a Russian puppet state. Um, anyway, the primary effort seems to have come out of Belarus to strike down and try to seize the capital city of Kiev. Another northern invasion axis uh, came down, uh, targeting the cities of Chernihiv, Sumy, etc., Another one uh, came in from the northeast, going against the second largest city in the country, Kharkiv. Uh, and then there was the invasion force that had already been sort of pre-positioned in an area in the east of Ukraine, the Donbass region. There are two sort of artificially created, um, allegedly pro-Russian breakaway republics. I'm using air quotes right now because it's super duper authentic. Um, that, that Russia had numbers of sort of partisan forces in as a veneer of the, the fact they're staging their own troops there, and of course the large garrison in the south in Crimea. So it's, it's worth noting that there's something of a... I hesitate to call this a flaw, because in the event that um, there's a sudden reversal and, and Russia turns this whole thing around and you know really just decisively wins militarily, um, be a lot of egg on a lot of faces... But one of the things that appears odd is that the basic planning procedure for launching this invasion didn't concentrate all 190,000 Russian troops in one or two areas. It spread them out over four or five. So instead of one enormous uh, land force with probably insurmountable numbers and a relatively well-defended supply chain. Um, instead, the Ukrainians were presented with being able to confront four or five significantly smaller forces, almost none of which could mutually support each other. So right from the beginning, there, there seemed to have been strange gaps in, in rudimentary planning, at least as, as we understand it, um, in that dividing one's forces is almost never a good idea. And Russia's plan was predicated on that. Now, it appears there was also a, a sixth force in reserve. Uh, there's been a, a small fleet of Russian naval ships. That's redundant. Naval ships? You're not going to have Air Force ships. That's stupid sounding. A bunch of Russian ships in the Black Sea, including a bunch of amphibious landing craft. So these are, these are vessels that are designed to carry uh, what, what we would call Marines in the United States and what they call Russian naval infantry. Um, and it looks as though this has been used to threaten the uh, third largest city in the country, the port city of Odessa, which has a deep water port on the Black Sea. Uh, that doesn't look like it's gone anywhere, and given uh, recent events, it doesn't look like it's going to. But again, we can always be surprised at some point later. So what it looks like has happened uh, is that the 
attempt to seize Kiev has failed. The, the city itself was never encircled. Um, when I say encircled, that, that's a very literal term. It means that your army surrounds a, a city, um, and this will then prevent reinforcements from getting in and breaking a siege. Uh, it also prevent the defenders from getting out and retreating to then go and fight you someplace else. So this is a very classical, for, for lack of a better word, form of warfare that has been common uh, in Europe for centuries. So ever since cannon became widespread on the battlefield, a traditionalist European army's siege would consist of surrounding a city with artillery uh, supported by infantry to prevent other infantry from attacking it. And then as we move forward in other areas, it's supported by you know, armor, things of that nature, and then just besieging it in almost medieval fashion, just cut off the power of the water communications and you just shell it until the people within either die or give up. That's, it's brutal, and it's something that the United States doesn't engage in, or at least not in the, the, the modern experience. Like One of the challenges that I think we face in understanding how this is working is in the global war on terrorism, the United States engaged in painstaking and costly operations in urban centers such as the battles of Fallujah and urban combat is a meat grinder. It is exhausting. It is extremely challenging. <clears throat> and the United States and our Western allies have relied on extremely disciplined, very well-trained, exceptionally well-equipped, uh, generally independent thinking individuals to engage in professionally drilled tactics which surround a concept known as uh, combined arms. So this would be the idea that the infantry and armor and artillery and air support and communications and logistics, all of that works in concert in order to maximize every possible advantage, coordinate between all of them, and as a result, prevent any particular weaknesses from being exploited by the enemy to the fullest extent possible. So just as a very brief, like really oversimplified example of this, armor tanks uh, are great in open terrain, and in that context, they work really well against um, dismounted infantry. But in urban warfare, wherein infantry has lots and lots of cover and concealment, uh, which are similar but uh, have an important distinguishing feature, concealment hides you from view and cover prevents you from being shot. So... Uh, cover is generally preferable, but both are advantageous to some degree. But in a dense urban center where infantry has abundant cover and concealment and the ability for armor to maneuver, and you know, tanks have the benefit of being able to you know, drive it you know, 30, 40, 50 miles an hour, depending on the terrain, and, and turn and move so they're harder to hit. But if they are channelized into confined spaces where they can't maneuver and they're relying on their armor for protection is really easy for dismounted infantry, even armed with like really unimpressive uh, improvised weapons to simply maneuver around it and then exploit the weaknesses of that extremely sophisticated and expensive piece of armor. You know, slip a, a homemade bomb into the tracks, disable it, uh, put something in it. It's in an urban center. Um, 
armor is at a distinct disadvantage against dismounted infantry. Unless the armor can be supported by infantry, which is moving in concert with those tanks and that armor. And so if you can have your own infantry providing screening in order to protect the armor, the armor can then provide overwhelming fire superiority, as in like it's got a gigantic gun uh, and it's heavily armored. So people with machine guns and whatnot are highly unlikely to do any meaningful damage to it. And if you wind up running into a building that's too heavily reinforced for your infantry to take, then you can call the tank up, escort that tank into position and either flatten it or um, maintain fire superiority over with the tank in, in order to move around it. So by having infantry and armor able to work cohesively and in concert with each other that way, you can maximize your advantages and minimize your disadvantages. And if there's ever casualties taken, then being able to coordinate with helicopters to provide casualty evacuation so that your armor support screened by infantry could provide a safe landing zone for your helicopters to come in and extract your wounded. These are all heavily technical skills and these are advanced tactics in many contexts, in the American experience, these are foundational. And we were able to successfully engage in these types of extremely challenging, exhausting urban combat operations because of the individual skill, discipline, training, equipment, and morale of our uh, fighting men because of the tactics that we employed, which gave our forces a significant series of advantages over a dismounted enemy with no armor support. Um, and we were able to maximize all of that. And it seems really, really, really clear at this point that the quality of the individual Russian fighting man is actually really bad, <laughs> like really bad. Uh, there, there are some things about the, the Russian military that I just didn't know. One of them, which blew my mind, they were not issued socks up until, like, recent history. I, I mean, like, a, as a, a Marine reservist, we always joked about getting the hand-me-down equipment, you know, stuff that was, you know, five to ten years out of date in some instances, and being, oh, whoa, was us. If you're the dude that's been conscripted, for a year into the Russian army and like the army didn't give you socks. I mean, I feel, I feel somewhat guilty about having um, felt snubbed by getting somewhat older equipment. I'll put it that way. Right. So the quality level of the individual Russian fighting man is a, almost a surprise. It, it has been the case that Russia has been attempting to modernize its, its army for a very long time. And a key component of this, which is also something that is not necessarily immediately obvious to civilians, um, decentralized leadership, as in you don't need to have the general making all of the decisions, it's delegated down to lower levels, is also something at which the United States specifically and many of our Western allies excel. And part of this is practical. Uh, during the Cold War, it was never the case that we were going to outnumber the, the Red Army. And as a result, we had to be able to distribute command and control authority over things, that, that leadership down to lower levels. 
So it was just out of necessity. And this has also been just part of American military tradition for a long time. So within a, this is a really broad overview, talking more about the individual level, right? There are enlisted personnel and there are commissioned officers. This is the big distinction. Enlisted personnel are people that sign up to join. They enlist. Those who are commissioned, in, at least in the American tradition, receive a commission that is ostensibly from, now it's in the name of the president. And so these are people who are placed into uh, managerial roles. So it's folks that are intended to have more formalized leadership training, etc. Uh, so these would be your lieutenants, captains, etc. Um, at the, the lower level of the officer ranks. And in the enlisted side, you have your you know, famous ranks like private and corporal and sergeant and things of that nature. So what, what makes the armed forces of the United States so effective is that our non-commissioned officers, NCOs, these are your enlisted leaders. So corporals, who at least in the Marine Corps, are traditionally, although practically speaking this isn't necessarily the case, um, traditionally going to be people who are in charge of a fire team. So you'd be a roughly 21-year-old guy who is in charge of three other people who are your age or younger generally, and your job is managing that small fire team unit of, of four people in, of which you're a member. Then, again, this, these are really broad generalizations. You could have a sergeant who is in charge of a squad, which would be comprised of several fire teams, right? And the ability for those junior uh, enlisted leaders to have tactical as in ability to win battles, like authority to make decisions like that is something that is very deeply instilled in the armed services of the United States. So at least in the Marine Corps, sergeants are considered to be the backbone of the organization. Like they, they tell you that when you go to sergeant's corps, sergeants are the backbone of the Corps. And there's a degree of truth to that in that it, when it comes down to like winning a fight, like an, an actual like gunfight, it is the people who are in it that are going to be best knowledgeable how to maximize terrain, technology, training, equipment in order to ensure victory for themselves and defeat for the enemy. And so being able to entrust leadership down to that junior level, the enlisted people on the ground making decisions, has a number of knock-on effects in the modern era. So we allow non-commissioned officers to coordinate fires. We talked about combined arms earlier. So if you are Sergeant Schmuckatelli and you're leading your squad of uh, riflemen and you are tasked with uh, securing an objective in clearing out a city, for example, because going back to that well again, you can be the guy that radios up the tank and tells the tank, hey, we need you to position here. We're going to support you in these areas. And so somebody who is an E5, who's you know, probably like a under 30 year old dude who's only just now starting to get like knee problems and back pain, right? Someone who's been in for uh, somewhere, you know, the joke is in the army, like, you know, three years or something. It took me way longer not to get to that pay grade when, when I was in the Marines. Uh, but someone who's probably been in for um, no more than about uh, 10 years, 11 years or so, uh, has the ability to coordinate with a multi-million dollar tank with a 120 millimeter gun and or use the radio to call in airstrikes 
or casualty evacuations in which they're they're telling commissioned officers flying airplanes like where to drop bombs and stuff. And this is a capability that we generally take for granted. Like one of the key failings that I believe we had in Afghanistan was we we built the Afghan National Army along American lines. And as a result, when the American support with combined arms went away, it collapsed under its own weight. That's a separate rant that I'd like to go on later, but anyway. Very little of this is true with the Russians. So starting just from the individual training standpoint, somewhere on the order of 20 to 30% of the Russian military are conscripts. People who didn't enlist, they were short stick, you've lost the lottery, and now you're in the army for a year. And one of the interesting innovations that Vladimir Putin attempted when he was trying to modernize his armed forces was in order to make the, the conscription contract um, more palatable, because being conscripted is just lousy. No one likes it. Like you get forced to do something, almost like a prison sentence. And I'm, I'm told that Russian food in the army is, is just as bad as the prison food, right? So no one wants to be there. But in order to soften the blow, they reduced the length of conscription from 24 months to 12 months. Here's where this is relevant. Basic U.S. Marine Corps boot camp that 17-year-old high school kid with a parental consent waiver uh, can go to is 13 weeks long. Then, depending on what your job is going to be, you'll go on to some facet of what's called the school of infantry. So I was a total pogue. It means personnel other than grunts. I was not infantry when grunts are infantry. So pogue is often sort of a, a derogatory sort of joking term. So since I was a total pogue, I went through U.S. Marine Corps boot camp. And then I went on to what's called MCT or Marine Combat Training, which is like watered down basic infantry tasks school so that every Marine is ostensibly trained to be a basic rifleman. So in the event there's a serious emergency, it doesn't matter if you're part of the band or a cook or an admin clerk, you can still pick up a rifle and know which end the loud part is, essentially. You can run a crew-served weapon and you'll at least basic exposure to how to work these things, etc. Is it particularly uh, sophisticated? You know, not really. Uh, but is it significantly better than the non-infantry, non-combat arms training in a lot of other branches of service? Y yes, absolutely. So that, at, when I did it, lasted a little bit more than a month. And my understanding is that they've extended the duration of it by a few weeks. So you've got probably about a month and a half to two months of rudimentary infantry school and then you've got whatever primary school it is that you have to go to, your, what's called your A school. Uh, and then certain occupational specialties, particularly if you're in like something very specialized, like you're an aviation mechanic, and then you also have to learn aviation ordinance, you might have to go to a secondary school as well. So the training pipeline for just a basic enlisted Marine is in some instances, like over a year. And if you're an infantryman, it can be not quite a full year by the time you actually get to the fleet and you are entry-level trained in how to not be totally worthless when you're assimilated into your first command and then actually start learning what that unit does on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you're 
20 to 30 percent of the military in Russia has a contract, a, a mandatory service contract of conscription that is one year long. It is entirely possible that at any given point, the depth of experience, the individual fighting man that is actually out there in the mud going up against uh, an armed Ukrainian populace has less than a year of service under his belt. That's remarkable, right? So you have a not insignificant proportion of the Russian military, which has no experience whatsoever. And this is on a good day. This is even in some of the elite units as what I was assuming the conscription program was only for the generic infantry, for example. Turns out that's not the case. There are even some of the elite organizations like VDV that do like airfield seizures very poorly. We can talk about that later. Um, in which like one in five of their dudes is a conscript who's been in for less than a year. So even if, even if you're sneaking at the end of your, your, your contractual obligation to be there, you've got like no more than a handful of months of actually being with your unit and doing any sort of training whatsoever, other than your basic indoctrination. That's wild. So the individual soldier in the Russian military has proven to be remarkably substandard. And even their attempts to create a more modernized non-commissioned officer corps, you know, sergeants and whatnot, seem to have largely amounted to very little. So some proportion of conscripts don't hate it that much, and they decide to become what they call contract soldiers, so they actually voluntarily sign an enlistment contract. But the pool from which they're drawn is relatively shallow, and the number of people that voluntarily enlist in the Russian armed services is proportionally not anywhere near as high as, as you'd think. So the attempts that they have to create a professional corps of enlisted leaders have not amounted to very much. And even if they did have a particularly average non-commissioned officer corps at the individual and tactical level, their ability to actually do any training in order to instill any proficiency at rudimentary tactics, they just don't have the time. One in five to almost one in three of your, your people are only there for a few months and then they're gone. That isn't enough time to drill into people, even the rudimentary things. Like, what do you do if you are ambushed? you know, dismount, gain fire superiority, assault into the ambush. None of these things are instinctive. They all require drilling and training and practice and trust. Like the idea of if you're in an armored vehicle, you have to either, depending on what kind of mounted operation it is, again, speaking outside of my lane a little bit, but if you're in an AAV, an amphibious assault vehicle. They're wildly obsolete, but we used huge numbers of them in 2003 invading Iraq. If you're an infantryman crammed into one of those things like a sardine, and the armored vehicle that you're in starts taking indirect fire, every instinct is going to tell you, stay inside the armored vehicle. But what has to happen is that that thing has to open up its doors. You and all of your buddies have to get out of it. You have to start shooting into the area that is, a, is firing upon you. And then you have to charge it after you've suppressed it a little bit. That's <coughs> totally counterintuitive. That requires training, and that requires discipline, and that requires trust. And you don't 
get that consistently with only a couple of months of training. And that affects everything at the tactical level. Your ability to conduct what we think is rudimentary, um, those, those basic tasks of being able to coordinate stuff, like getting people trained up on, on radio discipline well enough that they can conduct combined arms operations with multiple different things. It might be the case that you have a radio man carrying like a, a big, like I called a 117 radio. You might also have like two separate smaller radios on your person if you're a squad leader. Like when I was running convoys in Afghanistan, we had a, uh, we had a lot of, we had primary alternate contingency and emergency communications for everything. PACE, it's an acronym, primary alternate contingency and emergency. So we had to manage uh, a, a satellite communications network. We had a computer-based version of SAME, which was similar to the Blue Force Tracker, um, which is jargon for most of you. You won't necessarily know what that means. It, it, computer tracking thing. We had... Uh, individual radios that had the ability to call uh, different other units in our area of operations. And as an emergency, we had these things called Roshan phones, like basically indigenous cell phones. We had different layers of communication. You had to be able to operate all of those. And I would say that we did so with reasonable proficiency because none of us are uh, specifically trained in that. All of the Marines that I served with in Afghanistan were pulled from all sorts of weird backgrounds. So most of this was outside of our specialty, but we still had the ability after the time of service and the training that we had to get basically proficient on how to manage four different communication things. If you've got a population of people who like their most senior enlisted leaders have been in for like three years and then call it a quarter of their personnel are people with only a few months of time in service, like yikes. Um, and this has been apparent. Like there are so, so very many reports of the individual quality of the people operating the trucks and dismounting and getting to firefights in Russia, just being underwhelming. It's, it's been a surprise. And this leads to the tactics issue. If you're not capable of basic communications and combined arms and everything, it makes it much harder to maximize all of the potential benefits that are available to somebody. And time and time again, we've watched Russians attempt unsupported attacks on various things. Uh, I saw several videos recorded from a variety of angles, probably just by random Ukrainians and whatnot. So of course, we do have to remember, fog of war is real. Take that with a grain of salt. But watching helicopter assaults against airfields in which it was obvious that there had been either minimal or no meaningful effort to suppress uh, Ukrainian air defenses. So in broad daylight, helicopters with these allegedly elite VDV troops flying and just getting cut to pieces. Wild. And if you're... These are symptomatic of Russia's struggle to conduct meaningful combined arms operations. Uh, the New York Times just had a, a, a fairly interesting... Uh, video piece in which they revealed some of the results of what they've been listening to Russian radio communications. This is another shocking thing. A huge amount of Russian communications have been unencrypted. And as a result, like people can just listen in on it, which is wild to me. And that makes me somewhat suspicious. But again, the fog of war is real. And it, this might be an elaborate ploy. We don't know. But what we do know is that it sounds within internal Russian communications like they're struggling this. It looks like they're struggling at, at this. And 
the, the end results are Russia has accomplished its gains uh, largely through weight of numbers, it seems. Again, we don't know. The fog of war is real and it's hard to tell. But it looks like an individual and a tactical level, this is going very poorly for the Russians. Now, operationally, this gets somewhat more challenging. Because using open source intelligence, things that we can geolocate videos and, and footage off of and satellites and whatnot, we can see generally where Russia's forces are and what its dispositions are. Uh, there are fairly reasonable estimates about, for example, the number of Russian tanks that have been captured by the Ukrainians. Um, and because these are independently verifiable based on open source intelligence and methodology, which any person can vet and apply themselves, I'm inclined to think that's much more reliable than simply going off of the numbers that either Russia or Ukraine, or frankly, that NATO in general says, right? Because there's going to be ambiguity about where those numbers are coming from, a propriety uh, towards propagandism, etc. That said, operationally, we can vaguely see where Russian-Ukrainian lines are, but it's not immediately clear what the status is. So the Institute for the Study of War made an extremely bold statement a few days ago, and their, their conclusion was that the initial operational objective, uh, based on the preponderance of forces, was the main effort by the Russians to seize Kiev had been defeated by the Ukrainians. So to disclose my own bias here, like I want the Ukrainians to win, I want the Russians to lose. So with that said, confirmation bias is something I need to be cautious of here. And it's a bold claim, it's a bold statement. Um, I think exercising some degree of caution is wise here. So one of the ways that we can run afoul of our own optimism is by viewing Russian progress in terms of those shaded in areas of the map that I mentioned. So you take a crayon and you color parts of it and be like, aha, look, 90% of Ukrainian territory is not controlled by Vladimir Putin. And that doesn't relate to the reality on the ground per se. We can also look at <coughs> casualty exchange figures, um, which are again, somewhat suspect. I think directionally, it is probably the case that Russian losses have been much higher than anybody expected. Uh, I think it is also probably fair to say that Ukrainian losses have been lighter than expected. Uh, the fact that after a full month, the Ukrainian Air Force is still operating and control of Ukrainian airspace has not been decided one way or the other is remarkable, right? I think that that's, it's, those are, I think, fair statements. We also are tending to say like, aha, but yes, also look, Vladimir Putin doesn't control any of the major cities. And this, this is where I'm willing to flirt with a healthy degree of skepticism and pessimism. And this is where I want to start laying out some caution. Uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't need to control the major cities in order to accomplish other goals. What are those other goals? I don't know. I have suspicions. Um, 
one of them being simply controlling the territory between the Crimean Peninsula and the Donbass region allows him to much better resupply and re-equip his troops. It's a, what they're calling a land bridge uh, to Russia. Supply and logistics have been a key shortcoming of the Russians. And so if he, as he probably will, is able to destroy uh, the resistance at uh, the port city of Mariupol, which lies between the Crimean Peninsula and the Donbass region, then the Russians can resupply their forces in the east and the south far more easily. And that then gives him a lot of other options. The key failing of the uh, Kiev invasion axis, and one of the things that appears to have stalled out the northern and the northeastern invasion axes have been supply and logistics. And in the event that the southern and southeastern invasion axes can then mutually support each other, resupply each other, they can then resume offensive operations and potentially destroy the Ukrainian field army as exists in the east and then move elsewhere. It's worth noting, this has only been going on for a month. It took Hitler longer to seize Poland in 1939. So it's, it's worth noting the Ukrainians are giving much better than they get but at the end of the day, they might still be outmaneuvered operationally because individually and tactically, you can do heroic things, but if the enemy is still accomplishing operational objectives, you're in serious trouble. So it could be the case that those terrain features are necessary in order to either restart the Russian offensive uh, or these were the primary objective to begin with. It's hard to say. I, I, I am somewhat persuaded that it appears just, again, based on the sheer weight of effort that was put into it, the sheer number of resources uh, that the attempt to seize the capital of the city in Kiev appears to have been the main effort that does appear to have stalled out for the time being. I'm willing to concede that could be like a operational um, setback for the Russians. I would love it if it was an actual defeat, as the Institute for the Study of War points out, uh, or, or opines. I'm not going to hang my hat on it, though. I'm concerned. It could also be the case that Russian operational objectives are simply not concerned with taking any of the major cities. I think Kiev itself was potentially an exception to this. It just seems odd that Russia has been unable to, for example, encircle Kharkiv up in the, the northeast. I'm willing to allow that Again, the individual and tactical failures of the Russians have allowed the Ukrainians to keep its resupply lines open, and the city is still capable of mounting counterattacks. But it could also be the case that it's just easier for the Russians, because of their individual and tactical shortcomings, to rely on hide behind their artillery pieces and flatten everything in front of them. That has been, again, the traditional way of European siege warfare for hundreds of years, and it doesn't look like Vladimir Putin is particularly interested in innovating, um, especially considering the shortcomings, the small scale that we've talked about earlier. So operationally, I am less sanguine here. The invasion axis coming out of the Crimea has been the most effective. Institute for the Study of War has also conceded that this is the most existential threat uh, compared to all the others. They've got the largest amount of territorial gains. There's been no meaningful counterattack that has reached into the Crimean Peninsula itself. Uh, 
the Ukrainians are still contesting several of the cities, but Odessa is in real danger of being cut off because it's, it's so close to the Moldovan border. Uh, so it's, it's possible that uh, this whole thing turns around and the, the heroic defense in depth that the Ukrainians have mounted could eventually be rolled up and reversed if, if Russia is able to reorganize and just keep pressing on. It, it's also worth remembering that the perception of loss within Russia in general and the Russian military particularly, it's just not the same. Like the casualty exchange rates that the United States and our Western allies engaged with in Afghanistan were hideously lopsided. Like the last several years of the war up until the debacle of of getting everybody out of uh, Kabul, in which, you know, of course, famously 13 uh, of our Marines, sailors and soldiers were killed. There are years, plural, in which either no Americans died or single digits of Americans died as a result of enemy action. And it, yes, granted, it's because we largely outsourced combat operations to the Afghan National Army, who fought valiantly and lost huge numbers of people, something that we, we don't give them anywhere near enough credit for. Those, those bastards fought like hell while they still had access to our, our support because we built their entire military to work along Western lines. Be like taking the wheels off of a car and being angry at it because it couldn't drive it very well anymore. Well, we took the wheels off and the whole thing crashed and burned, unfortunately. At any rate... We lost a few thousand people over the span of 20 years, roughly. And the American stomach for prosecuting the war gave out. We didn't, we didn't, didn't have it in us as a culture. And I, I bemoan that. Uh, but that's a cultural problem that's much bigger than just the military campaign. This does, doesn't appear to be the case with Russia. I mean, Russia has a, a long-standing cultural pride of like the insane fortitude that they exhibited in pushing Adolf Hitler's armies out of Western Russia. And the way that they demonstrate this is in the millions and millions and millions of dead Russians. With, with the exception of China, and it, nothing, we, we don't necessarily focus on what happened between Japan and China in the Second World War, but suffice to say, it was real bloody. But with the exception of the Chinese, who suffered hideously against uh, the, the Japanese, realistically, I, I, I think I read uh, a piece recently that said something like eight out of ten fatalities, like combat fatalities in World War II on the European theater were Russians. I'm using Russian a little bit imprecisely here. It's the Soviet Union, right? Um, but still, that's a point of cultural pride that Russia herself was able to sustain this war effort in spite of hideous losses. And there's this echo of sort of perverse pride in being able to withstand that kind of bloodletting. And I, I think a lot of Western media that are I think very prematurely triumphalist about ah, the, the losses are going to pile up. And when the body bags start coming home to Vladivostok and St. Petersburg, the Russian people just aren't going to put up with it. I don't know that there's anything in the Russian character that would support that supposition. And I think the failure by 
the Western press to appreciate the fact that Russia is different from us is a point of hubris that I'm going to explore in greater detail later. But suffice to say, um, I am not convinced that hideous losses on the battlefield in Russia, even if only directionally accurate. I think the, the last reliable or plausible sounding numbers that I, I observed were that the low end estimate uh, for Russian killed in action was like in the 7,000 range. There is a brief uh, moment in which a Russian newspaper, I believe it was a, anyway, I don't remember the specific one, but there was a, a Russian newspaper that briefly published the Ministry of Defense in, in Russia said there'd been something like 9,000 something killed in action and it was immediately um, pulled down and deleted and it wasn't there anymore. The fact that it, it appeared and it was reasonably close to Western estimates, and then it was pulled implies that I think somewhere in that less than 10,000 range of killed in action is not implausible. I'll put it that way. Um, sure, yeah, you could have four-dimensional chess with Putin attempting to make us think we're doing better. I say we because I think generally speaking, the West is at least morally aligned with the, the plight of the Ukrainians. So if I use the West and Ukraine a little bit interchangeably from time to time, I apologize, but there's that. It, it, anyway... Even if that's true, and it, it dramatically outstrips the number of combat losses that the United States and all of our allies combined suffered over 20 years of, of multi-theater war against jihadism in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, etc., I don't know of any historical basis by which you could say, like, yeah, the Russian people are going to revolt over that. I, I just don't see it. Um, so I think the triumphalism about Russian losses is potentially misplaced. The one thing that's worth pointing out, though, there's a, there was a fellow named Clauschwitz, who was a Prussian military philosopher, uh, sort of the West's Sun Tzu, really. And he pointed out that the objective of war is to destroy your enemy's ability or will to resist. And between the two, the will was the more important so it could be the case, though, that, again, Russia's armies are heavily conscript heavy. Uh, they may have serious morale problems, which may hamper their ability to do things. I don't know that it turns the tide. Um, it may be the case that they simply run out of steam in terms of men and materiel, and they no longer have the ability. Now, there's a book called Eaters of the Dead by Michael Crichton, which was adapted into what I actually, I controversial moment. I actually think the movie was better here. Uh, the 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas. Uh, great movie. Definitely worth the watch. There's a great quote in it where the soothsayer tells the, the main warrior character that wars are won in the will. And I, I think that's true. You know, between the two, will is more important. And I think it's clear the case right now. Vladimir Putin has the will. He has the will to continue fighting. He doesn't seem to be especially moved by the fact that he is essentially feeding his troops into a wood chipper in Ukraine, even if the conservative loss numbers are off by a little bit. It looks like he's paying a hideous cost in blood and treasure for this, but it looks like he's willing to do it. We have not dissuaded him at any point. So if he loses the ability, if his armies are simply incapable of continuing the attack, that's something else, in which case I think that uh, the southern front away from Kiev is actually the much more important of the two. 
the siege of Mariupol is critical, or could be, and the attempt to take Kharkiv and Kiev uh, would be terrible morale losses, but secondary to the ability for Russia to continue resupplying its armies. So that's my snapshot of everything up to the operational level. Strategically, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I'm not convinced that the West in general, or the United States in particular, has been capable of exercising strategy since the Cold War. It used to be the case that the strategy of the Cold War, regardless of who was in office or which political party held Congress or whatever, that communism, the Soviet Union, needed to be contained, and that strategy of checking it at every opportunity persisted for decades. And then when the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union fell apart, I feel like we fell asleep at the switch. I don't see any indication of a coherent strategy here. Um, the, the sanctions that we've put in place, I don't believe are going to last. I don't think that we're serious enough to maintain them. And I think there's some troubling developments that immediately undercut their efficacy when it comes to the relationship that Vladimir Putin is developing with the Indians, for example. India is buying up Russian goods at bargain basement prices, and we can't undercut that. We're not going to be able to offer fighter jets or petroleum to India cheaper than Vladimir Putin can. And India just doesn't seem moved by our moralizing about the justness of our uh, economic crusade against Vladimir Putin. I am horrified at the fact that we are relying on the Russians to be a go-between between us and the Iranians. And because we are still flirting with the Iranians, this is now driving the Saudis toward considering accepting Chinese yuan for fuel. If we drive Saudi Arabia into the arms of a Chinese-Russian-Iranian thing, um, there's a real possibility that the bad guys are going to have energy dominance. And it's also worth pointing out that the breadbasket of Europe is some combination of Russia and Ukraine, both of which are now hoarding their grain because there's a war on, didn't you know? Other people whose opinions I think are worth considering have pointed out that most fertilizers are a direct creation of petroleum products. Um, so it's possible that strategically Vladimir Putin is positioning himself to starve the West into submission by cutting off the energy supply and the food supply. I don't know. Um, I could be wrong on all of that, and I'm well out of my depth when it comes to issues of strategy. But that's the snapshot. That's what things look like. I think individually and tactically, the Ukrainians are performing well. I think that's a fair thing to say, uh, better than expected. I think that it is also fair to say that individually and tactically, the Russians have demonstrated that their military is nowhere near as dangerous as we believed it was. As a child of the Cold War who has distant memories of watching my dad's reaction to seeing the uh, Berlin Wall come down and just always having the back of my mind for that Tom Clancy-fueled uh, teenager thing where Russia is always this sort of like near-peer adversary, 
and then seeing how much better we are on an individual and tactical level they are, it's been shocking. But uh, it's worth pointing out, operationally, they might be winning. And it's just their conditions for victory might not be something that we want to see or are capable of immediately understanding. I'm afraid that a lot of the raw, raw, wave the flag, everyone's put their blue and yellow avatars on Instagram or whatever, are in for a rude awakening when Ukraine capitulates and it doesn't seem really like, oh my, but the, the guys with the tractor stole tanks and everything. It's like, that's all well and good, but uh, it might be the case that Russia is accomplishing its operational objectives. Uh, if their goal is to control energy, they've seized Chernobyl, which seems like a strange target, and they've... Uh, taken the largest nuclear reactor in Ukraine and Europe, in point, of fact, in point of fact. And if they can cut off the Ukrainians from access to the Black Sea entirely, then all the natural gas reserves that Ukraine was once sitting on are basically just uh, inaccessible to them. And then the ability for a pro-Western, struggling, democratic state like Ukraine to undercut or compete with Russia in terms of selling food and fuel goes right out the window. They might not need to occupy the whole country, they probably don't, in order to cut them off from the fuel, the energy. And it's entirely possible that simply by keeping the war going, they can inflict hideous losses on the Ukrainian people, destroy a lot of their key infrastructure, force them to start hoarding food, and this will mess up supply chains and food prices and energy prices for the entire Western world. I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm wrong. I want to see Ukraine win. I believe the West should be doing more. Uh but I'm much more interventionist than is fashionable these days. So this has gone longer than I expected. We're over an hour now, but that is the status as of today, March 25th in the afternoon. Um, hopefully that was illuminating to some of you guys, have a better understanding of like the layers upon which conflict is waged, individual, tactical, operational, strategic. You could probably put logistical in there as well, uh, there's an old adage that amateurs talk strategy, rank amateurs talk equipment, and professionals talk logistics. My good friend, uh, Scott, uh, who is a logistics officer, would probably uh, tut-tut me if I didn't mention the extreme importance of that. And of course, we've seen on a uh, tactical and an operational level, the biggest problems Russia's have been logistical. So hat tip to that. Never make fun of the supply guys again. Um, anyway. That is episode two. Remember, folks, it's foggy out. Um, that's what we know, or at least that's what I believe we know. But it's also worth pointing out that uh, we're probably not going to know what's actually taking place for a really long time uh, well after this whole thing is wrapped up. And we are only in the opening stages of this. So buckle up. It's going to be a long ride. Uh, again, we, uh, <laughs> we, we're still engaged in the global war on terrorism. I know that the Afghan campaign is over, but we still have several thousand troops in Iraq. We still have uh, about a thousand, I think it's like nine hundred or so in Syria doing God knows what. I couldn't, I couldn't freaking tell you. But anyway, um, the Afghan campaign that the Soviet Union launched lasted uh, somewhere around a decade too. So the fog of war is real. Remember that you can't learn everything from the internet. The internet is not real life, much like Twitter is not real life. Thank God I don't use Twitter. Um, but that's what I know. That's what I think is plausible. And when you are evaluating this information for yourself, remember that anything coming from a government is going to be presenting to you the information the way the government wants you to see it. Ours included. 
possibly more so than most. So anything can be independently verified through open source intelligence is probably more useful. Um, that's all I got. So went an hour and eight minutes or so on this. I hope you found that illuminating. If there's anything about this that you think is uh, incomplete or incorrect in, in what I uh, have mumbled about here for a while, let me know. And we'll be in touch soon.